0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the new rules of the road in British Columbia when it comes to vulnerable road users. Vulnerable road users. This is the new legal definition for cyclists or a pedestrian and new passing and following requirements for motorists so there is now a new minimum distance for passing a cyclist on the road and also for following a cyclist got paul doroshenko standing by to discuss first let's have a listen to the transportation minister rob fleming here here he is
2: uh, one meter is the safe passing distance the the, the, the sort of birth you must give a cyclist if your vehicle is uh, passing uh, a cyclist and three meters is the is the minimum uh, follow-on distance so this kind of takes care of tailgating and getting too close uh, to a cyclist so close in fact that you might clip their handlebars and we know that those kinds of accidents have happened
0: all right let's discuss now with my guest paul doroshenko traffic lawyer acumen law very pleased to welcome him back hi paul thanks for coming on today yeah thanks mike good morning Okay, good morning to So this is a very interesting new law that's been brought into British Columbia. And there's lots more interesting details in there. But let's start first with the passing and following uh, regulations here. So how is this going to work? So so if a police officer sees you pass a, a cyclist too close, they can write you up with a ticket, right?
3: Yeah, I mean it's a one meter distance now, and uh, it's interesting that they that they picked one meter because you're thinking to yourself if you're on a road that's uh, 30 kilometers an hour, that's fine. You know, you're driving at 30, whatever you're passing a bike and it's a meter. What if you're on a highway going 110? You know, one meter to a to a to a bike. Um, well, you think you know, it should I, be you think it should be wider? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this oh. is the government has made a decision here to try and regulate this after years of people complaining about it. Uh, you know, I some of my my uh, closest brushes with death have been on a bike uh, when a, a vehicle didn't give me the room as they passed me. Um, so, I, you know, we have a lot of bike lanes now, and it's a lot safer, but you can't always ride in a bike lane. And when you can't ride in a bike lane, uh, you know, you should be safely passed. And I think that's the intention here of the legislation. So you can't go past them, uh, a bike, unless you've got at least one metre clearance.
4: And yeah, I wanna... are the
3: police are going to be out there with tape measures? Uh, am I going to be defending tickets where I'm challenging the police officer's calibration of their measuring tape or their meter stick? I don't know. We'll have to see how that one plays out.
0: One of the things I was wondering about is, okay, what if you have a cyclist who is veering a little far left? Like a cyclist is supposed to is supposed to
3: stay close to the curb, right? It's supposed to stay right in the lane. Correct. Supposed to remain to the right. That's correct. Yeah, and then you've yeah. got you know somebody who's swerving down the road, and that does happen. And and uh, it's it's not always easy to to drive your bike per- perfectly. And also, there's obstructions as you're driving too. You're riding your bike, yeah. and you've got to swerve around things. So yeah, sure. yes, there is that difficulty there. Yeah, you um, could you could also be in a in a
0: fairly narrow lane. So I'm just wondering about the the one meter passing distance. Like, what if you have to veer into the path of oncoming traffic in order to give a wide berth to the to the cyclist. Let me play another clip from the transportation minister here, Paul. Before you answer here, so let's listen to what Rob Fleming has to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. So here's Fleming.
2: Well, a so driver, if they're paying attention to uh, road conditions, including oncoming traffic, and, and and judges them to be safe to cross a solid yellow line, can do so. That's uh, in the Motor Vehicle Act, but they have to give a one meter. Uh, space uh, adjacent to a cyclist uh, when they are passing them. Um, that's common sense.
0: Yeah. So that's one of the things that I found interesting. That if you if you have to give a, a berth to a cyclist and that means you're crossing a yellow line, even like toward un, in un, crossing into oncoming traffic, you're allowed to do that, right? In order to pa- safely pass that cyclist.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're not normally allowed to cross a line, and that's yeah. regulated by the Motor Vehicle Act. And, and most things in the Motor Vehicle Act don't have an exception, right? You don't have an exception at any point for speeding. Um, you, know, you don't have an exception at any point for not stopping at a stop sign, coming to a complete stop. But you do have an exception here. And sort of the perfect example is right in front of my office. You think of 7th between uh, basically the Canadian Tire and Main Street there. Uh, it's, uh, it's narrow. It's one lane. There's a line down the center of it. Um, Occasionally, if you're on a bike, you have to ride down that street, and it's not unsafe if there's no traffic coming from the other direction to cross over the line to pass. And so the government has written this in. You have an exception uh, where you can cross a line in order to safely pass uh, someone on a a bicycle.
0: Speaking of Paul Doroshenko about the new rules of the road for passing and following a a cyclist on the road, and the minister also told me, Paul, that police will be on the lookout for people who pass too quickly or follow too closely on a cyclist. So, And they'll be writing up tickets. So let's have a listen to what he had to say here. This is Rob, uh, B.C. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. Let's listen.
2: We're going to step up the enforcement and increase the fines. Uh, We always have to work with the judiciary on what those fines uh, can look like. And some people will feel that uh, they're too low, especially where somebody is clearly uh, driving dangerously and putting somebody else at risk. Uh, but that's uh, something that can be changed over time. But we are going to uh, amend the offense code and make it a lot more expensive for those who are um, taking risks with other people's safety.
0: Okay, I'm not sure if they've amended that code yet, Paul, to increase these fines. Do you know if they have or no?
3: No, they haven't. The uh, okay. the legislation here was just passed. It hasn't even been corrected on the government's website yet. So we've still got the you know just the passed bill, and we're sitting there trying to figure out how it fits into the motor vehicle act and i haven't seen the regulations yet and of course a lot of this is is the devils in the details right and the regulations are something that are are uh, are, are passed without debate in the uh, in the legislative assembly it's just the you know governor and council basically signing off on it
0: yeah and do you think that i mean he was talking pretty tough there about police cracking
3: down tougher fines
0: tougher penalties do you think that police will enforce this this
3: law Oh, they'll enforce it for sure, but I mean, I'll, I'll wait and see if we see any uh, actual um, significant enforcement. I mean, traffic enforcement in the province—I've uh, seen some just atrocious driving lately, and I, and I think it's largely because they just don't have the resources. We've talked about this before. Uh, you know, they—they're they, concerned about uh, um, the RCMP in Surrey, uh, Mike Farnworth is, because they're worried they're, they won't have human resources to do it. That's really the problem: uh, dedicated traffic officers before the pandemic. We had, you know, very significant, uh, well-funded groups of police officers doing just traffic enforcement. Now it's basically Uh. general duty officers.
0: Okay. Let's also talk about, this is a really interesting part of the law, too, about when it comes to electric-assisted bikes, so e-bikes, electric scooters. People have seen these e-scooters flying down the street, becoming more and more popular. Now you take a look at this new law, the new powers of a police officer here, to to seize, you, the police can seize an electric bike or an electric scooter. Is that correct?
3: Uh, yeah, if they have a uh, uh, an inkling, basically that uh, that that bike does not comply with whatever's in the regulations, and we don't even know what are in the regulations yet, um, then they can seize it, uh, and they can seize it. You know, it's supposed to be on reasonable grounds, but I don't know how you're going to challenge it. Um, you know, it's, they haven't they haven't uh, rolled out any uh, any any law that would permit an application for review of the police officer seizing it. Uh, but they can seize it temporarily. It says, but there's no definition of temporarily is that six months a week, um, and examine it and test it. So are they going to have now a, you know, police division where they test to see how many Watts your motor is in your electric bike? I don't know. Uh, you know, this kind of, uh, seems to be giving them really, really broad powers of search and seizure uh, and it says right in the legislation, and you can't give them any grief as you're doing it. You must not yeah. hinder, interfere, or obstruct a peace officer in these circumstances. And okay. also, what's becoming yeah. unusual is, is um, you know, if you're on a bike and, and you're complying with the law, you don't have to provide a police officer with any personal information. Uh, but if you're pulled oh. over in many circumstances now and a police officer, you know, believes that you may have committed an offense, you've got to require, you've got to provide all that information. And it's now written into law, just like when you're driving a car.
0: All right. Talking about these new rules of the road for following and passing a cyclist. And Paul and I were just chatting off air there about the one meter for passing a cyclist, three meters for following a cyclist. Paul, I got to think that. Most people, would, if you're following a bike or passing a bike, you would give them a bigger, wider berth than that. Like, I I give cyclists tons of room. I don't want to get anywhere near them.
3: I'm always terrified that they're going to, you know, make some sudden movement just as I'm passing them. Which is why I probably give, you know, closer to two meters most of the time when possible. But you think about, like, this three meters behind uh, that you can follow it. And imagine yourself on a bike. You know, put yourself back on seventh there, and you're pedaling like crazy, and you got a dump truck three meters behind you.
5: You know, it's <laughs> uh,
3: it's kind of yeah. like the moment that you regulate something, people will push it to the limit. I mean, most of the time, I think people would probably leave closer to, you know, at least five meters. I know I certainly would. Three oh, meters yeah. is not far, right? It's right. it's half a car length, basically. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, sometimes I think
0: it's like they try to legislate some common sense here that people are following these rules already. Okay, let's go to the phone calls. Bill and Victoria. Hi, Bill. Go ahead.
3: Thank you, Mike. Uh, I think another insane thing that the government does. You have to remember. I think it's really, really important that the bikes are on the same road with the drivers that are licensed and trained. These bikes and the people on bikes, and as, as good as most of them are are not trained there's no courses there's no insurance there's no nothing so they can weave in and wave out they can go through stop signs they can do anybody thing they want and that's why the drivers get all upset well well thank
0: you thank you bill for the call well i'm you know cyclists have to follow the rules of the road too do they not paul like you can't just blow through a stop sign if you're on bike
3: Yeah, I mean, you can't. You're required to abide by the Motor Vehicle Act and uh, training or not. I mean, I see a lot of people in their cars uh, don't abide by the road despite the fact that they've taken driver training. And uh, it's very rare for me to see somebody actually stop at a stop sign except me um and uh so uh, you know the, the the comments where people wh- what do you see people do wrong on bikes most of the time it's usually not coming to a complete stop at a stop sign yeah or right stop sign. they're supposed well, to though they're supposed to though every day yeah they are supposed to yeah they are supposed to and you see yeah. drivers do it every day almost everybody who's listening to this show has run a stop sign if they're in their car within the last two or three days
0: yeah you see a lot of those rolling stops for sure let's go to rob in vancouver hi rob go ahead
4: Oh, hi, Mike. Um, Yeah, back in, uh, I hate to say how long ago, but uh, the very early 90s, I used to be a bicycle courier in Vancouver. This was uh, before faxes for legal documents, so, of course, a lot of legal documents got moved around on bicycles. Sure. Uh, Not electronic bikes, not bikes with, uh, you know, built-in cell phones. We pedaled them. And boy, did you get into trouble if you rode on the sidewalk, or if you blew a light, or anything like that? Uh, a lot of it is the cyclist's fault. I know.
0: It Who would you strange get? Who would I'm you get? This, Who would you get in trouble with? Are you saying the police would enforce it?
4: Oh, um, yeah. If you were caught on the sidewalk, bicycles used to have license plates on them in those days uh, for the couriers, and they oh. would write
3: you up. Right there, and too many tickets, you would be taken to court.
0: Paul Dorisenko, Co, your thoughts? Uh,
3: well, riding on the sidewalk is a problem, and we see no enforcement for it whatsoever. And I see people riding on the sidewalk all, all the time. Also riding through crosswalks. You know, you're not allowed to ride on a crosswalk. You're not allowed to ride on a, uh, a sidewalk. Those are prohibited. Um, and they're still prohibited, and don't do it. Uh, is there enforcement of it? You don't see much. I've never seen any. I've been living here for 23 years.
0: Hey, Paul, thank you for coming on today.
3: I always appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs.
0: All right. Let's talk about one of the most uh, controversial housing projects in the city. Now, it's the Kitsilano Homeless Housing Tower, Arbutus and West Seventh. And this is a 13-story tower, 129 units, $64 million. It would provide homes for people who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. The government is saying there will. This would be a supportive housing. So. People will not be left to their own devices there. They say there will be services for people who live in this development. The Lots of opposition to this project in the neighbourhood, and the provincial government recently stepped in to bring in a law to block any continuing court battle against it as they try to bring this project to completion. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Karen Finnan. Karen is with the Kitsilano Coalition. Very pleased to welcome Karen. Karen, thanks a lot for coming on today.
5: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Yeah, you bet. So first of all, before we get into, your, you guys are calling for a review and uh, a review of this whole project here, especially after the BC Housing um, Forensic Audit that was released. Let me ask if Just briefly about the project in the neighborhood. Can you tell me your concerns here with the project generally here?
5: Well, the issue with this project from the point of view of the Kitsilano Coalition is that there hasn't been any proper assessment of existing vulnerable populations that live in this neighborhood. There's an elementary school and daycare that is only 17 meters across from the site, Delamont yeah. Park, which is a long-standing toddler park, is another 17 meters in another direction and directly across from the front doors of the proposed project. And on the east side, the project is bordered by the Arbutus Greenway, which um, our seniors use to traverse kits.
0: Yeah, and you're concerned that what there could be more d- it, this could make the d- neighborhood more dangerous for people there.
5: Well, we've been told right since the outset of the project that the residents that are planned for the site will be the hardest to house. And right. that, that means individuals who have had difficulty maintaining housing elsewhere uh, for any number of reasons, for addiction reasons or not being able to follow the rules. And one of the primary concerns that we have is that uh, there will be a common drug use room. On the site. So open drug use will be permitted, and that will be on the lobby floor, uh, again, 17 meters from where children are going to school. So we feel that uh, while we support supportive housing and social housing at this site, that this is the wrong model to be placed so close to other vulnerable populations. There's also a women's recovery home that's been operating uh, 50 metres away for 60 years. And at the public hearing, Sancta Maria House indicated that they would have to close because having an open common use drug room uh, so close to their women who are trying to achieve recovery from uh, drug abuse is simply incompatible with their operations.
0: Okay, let's talk about some of the concerns here that you have with the uh, approval process here, Karen, and especially after the forensic audit into B.C. housing, the operations there. Uh, we've seen now the the head of B.C. housing has, has stepped aside, the head of the, one of the major housing providers stepped aside allegations of conflict of interest, uh, changing some minutes and deleting text messages over there and investigation continuing. This is a B.C. housing project that we're discussing here, correct?
5: That's correct. And what's happened with the 7th and Arbutus site um, is a microcosm of the mismanagement that was uncovered at B.C. housing that started right at the top with, as you mentioned, the disgraced former CEO, Shane Ramsey. So the coalition has made a number of FOI requests over time to try to get some insight into what has been a very opaque process. And some of what we've learned, or in fact the absence of information produced on FOI, is is of considerable concern and should be of concern to all taxpayers because it impacts on how dollars are spent in this province for low-income and supportive housing. So, for example, the 7th and Arbutus project will use a new modular housing uh, construction technology that uses steel boxes that will be fabricated offshore and imported. So the coalition made an FOI request last year to get information and documentation why this kind of construction was chosen and why a company called Mnemonic was selected at The designer and the builder, but our FOI request came back with absolutely zero documentation about uh, why this construction was chosen, what the cost-benefit analysis was of this versus uh, regular construction, and why this particular designer and builder was selected. So as you know, the construction cost alone for the project is $64 million. There's 129 units. That's a half a million dollars to build each of 387-square-foot studio apartments. So if you can bear with me for a sec, I looked up some figures. Sure. So the, the Altus Group Construction Cost Guide for 2023 indicates that the average hard construction cost for a private developer to build a 450-square-foot economy-level rental apartment in Metro Vancouver is $110,000. That's $245 per square foot. And again, my private developers have to pay for the land. In this case, the City of Vancouver is providing the Seventh and Arbutus property at no cost. Yet the Arbutus project will cost about $750 per square foot to build. So, why is the government paying three times more to build low income housing than it would cost a private developer? To build it so that's a great concern and again it's not limited to this site but this site at 7th and arbutus is illustrative of the problems that we've got with the building of low income and supportive housing in this province
0: wow that's really interesting especially the cost to construct this and especially when they're choosing a a construction model that you described where You're going to have prefabricated modules built offshore and then brought in here and assembled here. It sounds like it should be a lot cheaper to build something like that, never mind vastly more expensive.
5: Well, you would think so. You have to wonder why this model has been chosen, what's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about why Mm. this kind of model wants to. Who's driving this particular model for this site and why are taxpayers being asked to pay for such expensive housing. One of the other concerns that we have is that um, these fabricated steel boxes can only ever be used for single occupancy. That means that um, the 25% of homeless people who have children will never be able to have their children live with them. So we already know that there are women who have to choose between uh, having housing or living with their children. And rolling out this kind of model is going to cement studio occupancy suites and divide families for the life of the building, which is anticipated Hmm. to be 60 years.
0: Speaking of Karen Finn and Kitsilano Coalition, uh, we're talking about the Kitsilano Homeless Housing Tower and the continuing concerns and battle against it. Let me, play Karen, let me play a clip here for you from the Premier who was asked about this project. He supports it. This is Premier David Eby speaking about this Kitsilano Tower, and then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen to David Eby here.
3: I'm hopeful that we can address these concerns, and, and generally we find uh, after they've been open for a few months and, and things settled out at the site that people don't notice uh, the buildings. They, they really blend in nicely, and uh, there are obviously some exceptions to that.
0: Okay, so he said that, we have seen these type of opposition to these type of projects before he said in his experience once the projects are built they blend right in there are no problems people even forget they're there what do you think of that like you don't think that's going to be the case maybe you hope maybe hopefully it is the case if this goes forward but what do you think of that comment from him
5: well Mike, hope springs eternal but yeah. Um, I I go by the facts, I go by the history, and we know from the experience at Marguerite Ford, which serves a similar clientele and uh, has a similar number of units, that's the project that's uh, in the Olympic Village, that um, the the increase in police calls um, was massive after the project was opened uh, more than 10 years ago, and as of the most recent figures, uh, it's only dropped off about 10%. So there's been a, what they call a community advisory committee, which is um, the proponents of this type of housing. The solution is always, oh, there'll be an advisory committee that will work with the community and will work through these problems. Well, there's been a community advisory committee at Marguerite Ford for over 10 years, and the same problems um, continue to exist there. And uh, I think many people in this city, including myself, know individuals who have simply sold their places and moved from Olympic Village uh, due to the fact that we're building the wrong model of housing and not providing people with supports that will allow them to seek recovery and to integrate properly into neighborhoods. Isn't isn't that right. what supportive housing is supposed to be for? Is to help yeah. people recover and get on a better path and um, rejoin society. That's what not do happening. You,
0: what do you say to the argument, and I hear this frequently whenever we discuss these issues, that... This is just nimbyism run amok. These are privileged people who don't want homeless housing, social housing in their neighborhoods. L- l- just to illustrate what I'm talking about, let me play a clip here for you from a caller here to the show on this topic. So this is a, a caller, a listener to the show, who supports the project and listen to how he frames the the opposition to it. Then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. The people who are opposed to the project
5: really simply don't want poor people in their neighborhood, but they can't come right out and say that in a city council meeting. So they skirt around the issue and they sugarcoat what they're trying to say and they just make up phony excuses when you could just tell that they simply don't want homeless people in their neighborhood.
0: They don't want homeless people in the neighborhood. Karen, what do you say to that?
5: that all the time and it's simply not true Uh, the coalition and the neighborhood are in support of supportive and social housing at this site and we have said this from the very beginning two years ago we said come to us talk with us how do we figure out a project for that site that will serve the people that are in need the homeless people at risk of homeless low-income folks but will not create a safety concern for those of us that already live in the neighborhood there has to be a balance here and there has to be an assessment of the neighborhood where you are putting folks So what we've argued right from the very beginning is the kind of housing that is successful for people is what's called um, dispersed housing, where you put a smaller number of individuals that are struggling with mental health or addiction issues in a lot of different buildings. Instead of simply building what amounts to a human warehouse, putting drug vending machines in the lobby and a common use drug room and saying, have at her, I hope you can recover. So we've always argued, and that's the step that people look past with what we are advocating. We are advocating for a better form of housing that will actually help people. And, you know, it's always amazing to me, Mike, that it is this community, not the supportive housing industry, the poverty industry, people who say they are advocating For those who are mentally ill and suffering addiction, why aren't they standing beside us and arguing for a model of housing that will actually help people get on a path to recovery?
1: to
2: fight back against Ottawa. This uh, this candidate will not. We have to fight back against Ottawa and make sure that we put a target that's reasonable, realistic, and achievable. I know you're keen on fighting. You want to fight with Ottawa. You want to fight with the media. You want to fight, frankly, with your former self. Um, It's actually quite exhausting.
0: Okay, that was uh, one of the highlights of the televised leaders debate in the very competitive Alberta election. So let's take a look at what's happening. Next door here. Boy, this is really interesting fight here. We've got Alberta Premier Danielle Smith, the United Conservative Party fighting to hang on to power here, being challenged by the former Alberta Premier, NDP leader, Rachel Notley. The polls are close here. Wow. What a, an election this has been. I'm really interested in it. One week to go here in the Alberta election. Let's discuss it with my guest, Dwayne Bratt. Professor of Political Science, Mount Royal University, columnist at the Calgary Herald, Dwayne. Thanks a lot for coming on today.
1: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: Okay, we got Dwayne. We got one week to go here. I'm fascinated by this election. What do the latest polls say there in Alberta? This is close, right?
1: It it it, it is very close, Um, and given the margins of error in in the polls, I don't think you can use those as as a reasonable guide. It's really going to come down to maybe seven or eight different ridings, the vast majority in, in Calgary and a couple thousand people And which way they, uh, they end up going.
0: Wow. Because I've often heard, you correct me if I'm wrong here, that if you want yeah. to do sort of a, a shorthand version of the political landscape in Alberta, it's that the NDP owns Edmonton. They rule Edmonton. The United Conservative Party does really well in the rural parts of Alberta, the country of Alberta, countryside. And then it all comes down to Calgary. Whoever wins Calgary wins power. Is that sort of how it boils
1: down? That's sort of how it it goes down. We call it the three-legged stool. Uh, The rural part also includes mid-sized cities. So that complicates things. But it's clear that the UCP has a huge advantage there. And so it comes down to Calgary. The problem is there are 20 seats in Edmonton and 41 seats in the rest uh, outside the two major cities. So for the NDP to form government, the electoral map is really hard for them. They can't just uh, get a tie in Calgary. They can't even just win. They're going to have to win 18 to 20 out of the 26 seats that, that are in Calgary, and that's wow. uh, it's doable, but it's a high bar.
0: Yeah, that's a tall order for sure. What have been the main issues in the campaign, would
1: you say? Well, you you listed some right off the the, the top there, right? So the NDP is campaigning on health care and that you can't trust a Daniel Smith. Um, and they actually tie it into health care because um, Smith is campaigning on a public health guarantee, but her previous life, 10, 20 years, of activity was all about more private ways of of delivering health care. On the other hand, the UCP is arguing that um, Notley is tied to Singh and Trudeau, who are not popular in Alberta, and therefore she references this Trudeau-Singh-Notley alliance a lot. And the other is to attack the record of the NDP when they were in government for 2015 to 2019, which were really economic hard times in this province and yes, there were large macroeconomic conditions related to the price of oil in those years. But if you lost your job in 2017, right? you just remember that Rachel Notley was the premier. So two very different messages that we're hearing. From let the me,
0: hey, hey Dwayne, let me ask you about the uh, controversy over some of these comments from Danielle Smith that keep popping up, some of them made in podcasts like two years ago. But... Our fodder for an election that keep popping up. A lot of it has to do with the COVID restrictions, and she was highly critical of some of the health mandates that were brought in. And so let me play just one of them here. So this is, this one really jumped out at me, and I know it jumped out at a lot of people here. So here is Danielle Smith, the Alberta Premier, speaking on a podcast talking about how upset she was about some of the COVID health restrictions that were brought in, and she was so upset she refused to wear a poppy on Remembrance Day. Let's listen.
2: I noticed you're not wearing a poppy, I'm not wearing a poppy, but they ruined it for me this year,
0: the uh, the political leaders standing on their soapbox. Yeah, so that was one that really caused her a lot of grief. She apologized for that. She also apologized, Dwayne, for making comments about people who were vaccinated were sort of taken in by tyrants there was a a comparison to the nazis at one point you know she ended up apologizing for that let's listen to a little bit of the uh the apology here and then a response from rachel notley then i'll get your thoughts so here's daniel smith and then you'll hear the ndp leader rachel notley
5: Well, I've issued a statement
2: regarding my comments. I've always remained a friend to the Jewish community, to Israel, and to our veterans. Some comments demonstrate a set of values which no level of apology can ever make up for.
0: Okay, Dwayne, these comments have gotten a lot of attention. Do the voters of Alberta care about this stuff?
1: Some of it is baked in, uh, because when that video came out, there had been so many other uh, videos and audio tapes and statements um, of Smith saying similar stuff, not as extreme language with the comparisons to to Hitler and, and disavowing wearing the poppy, which is why she was forced to apologize for this one and not others. Um, I would also add uh, on Thursday, the morning of the debate last week, a scathing ethics uh, report came out of Daniel yes. Smith. Um, where she was found in violation of conflict of interest guidelines for having a phone call with a Calgary pastor by the name of Art Poslowski, who was facing criminal trials for his behavior at the Coots blockade. That audio was leaked. That led to an ethics investigation that discovered hours after she um, called Poslowski, she called Tyler Shandro, the justice minister, to plead for intervention in Pozlovsky's case, um, which is totally, totally inappropriate to intervene on specific cases. Chandra, to his credit, said, no, um, there's nothing we could do, and this is an inappropriate phone call. Um, and uh, she, um, Trussler, Marguerite Trussler found her in, in violation. Um, so we're not just talking about a tape here, we're talking about an independent officer of the legislature making this determination. And I think right. that really hurt Smith. And I think we're gonna hear more about it this week because it seemed to have got lost a bit last week with the uh, with the debate. But it all ties back to COVID policies, right? I found, it, I found it- um, we shutting I f- down the border over COVID restrictions. And right. there you have the premier of the province in January of 2023, trying to uh, get the justice minister to stop the charges.
0: I found it quite extraordinary that Alberta's ethics commissioner would release that report right in the middle of an election campaign. What what was up with the decision process yeah, there?
1: And I think it's because the ethics commissioner has very little sanctioning powers. Um, all she can do is raise the alarm. So imagine that this report had actually been held until after the election. I think this yeah. way it allows voters to make up their minds. You know, how serious was this? Does this trump other... Issues and, and factors at play here, um, we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to see. But it ties in with that larger narrative that has gone out there uh, about you know who uh, Smith works for and, and on what behalf.
0: Right. Speaking to Dwayne Bratt, we're talking about the Alberta election right. campaign. We're in the home stretch here; one week to go. Very close election fight. So I, the one thing that I've wondered about is this stuff about the comments that Danielle Smith had made about COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates and how this is all blowing up on her, the ethics report also related to the COVID restrictions. I'm just wondering like for a lot of Alberta voters, as you said, it's kind of baked in now. Maybe a lot of voters are familiar with this stuff and it, and it won't change their vote because I wonder if Alberta voters care so much about this or do they care about, They care about the economy. So let me play another clip here for you from the debate where you've got Daniel Smith versus Rachel Notley here, and they're talking about business taxes and economic certainty and, and uncertainty in Alberta. Let's have a listen to this exchange, and I'll get your thoughts.
1: When you take a position
2: of increasing business taxes, you're creating a lot of uncertainty. I find it deeply ironic that Ms. Smith is talking about uncertainty and its impact on uh, attracting investment. Uh, This is a person who well, started by bringing in the Sovereignty Act, an act that her former finance minister very clearly said was going to chase away investment because it undermined the rule of law.
0: Yeah, I thought that was an interesting response from Notley there. But when it comes to the economy and Notley's own record as premier on things like taxation and, and the energy economy there in Alberta, how much, how big of a factor is that, Dwayne, would you say in this election?
1: Oh, I mean, it, it, it is a huge factor and it depends on which way people are, are voting. Um this should not be a close election in many different respects. This should be an easy re-election for the Conservatives. After all, voting Conservative is the default option for, for many Albertans. Um, the economy has rebounded uh, to a certain extent. To give you an illustration. Uh, in the last budget um, in uh, the spring of 2023, uh, they, the government had $27 billion in renewable uh, royalty revenue. In the um, Notley years, it was as low as 5 and $6 billion, Wow. Right? So an increase of $20 billion, you can do a lot with that. And they are. They're, they're making all sorts of promises on tax cuts and more spending into education and, and health care. So you put those two things together, and you go, well, why is it a close election? It's a close election because of Daniel Smith. Because people are just unsure of what she'll say, what she'll do, who she's beholden to at any particular moment. And that's why it's so close. And that's why you've got, ultimately, it's going to be people who have voted conservative in Calgary their whole lives. And what do they do? Do they um, say, yeah, but the the NDP is worse uh, for the oil and gas sector, worse for the government budgets, the economy, therefore as much as I dislike what Smith is saying and doing, I'm going to have to vote UCP. Vote for the party instead of the leader. Others will say, I'm just going to stay at home. I, I don't like either of these options, and typically that's what cranky conservatives do in, in uh, Alberta. Is they simply don't vote. Or three, they go, you know, um, Rachel Notley was dealt a really bad hand. She, Her government, in retrospect, doesn't look as bad as, as we remembered at the time. Therefore, I'm going to vote NDP and, and some conservatives, high-profile conservatives, are now calling on other conservatives to lend their vote to the NDP for this election. So, uh, wow. former uh, conservative MPs like, like Lee Richardson, former conservative uh, MLAs like Doug Griffiths or Thomas Lukaszik, former conservative councillor in Calgary and mayoral candidate Jeremy Farkas are all saying vote for the vote for the NDP.
0: Why is that? Because they're just so opposed to Smith's leadership.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Inter- interesting. Okay. Last question for you, Dwayne. We've talked a lot about the air war here during the the election campaign, yeah. which is very important. Let's talk a little bit about the ground war here. Which party has got the best machinery on the ground to identify and get their vote out next week?
1: And, and that we we simply don't know because. The NDP's never had a strong presence in the city of Calgary. They only won three seats in 2019. Um, you're seeing a lot of door knocking, but with a lot of you know, Edmonton <laughs> MLAs down here. Um, and, and likewise, bringing in uh, workers from outside the province. In the case of the Conservatives, um, they're also bringing in volunteers and MLAs from rural Alberta to campaign in Calgary. Um, and uh, they've won so many easy elections in the city. H- how good is their ground game? We, we yeah. simply don't know what sort of test this will be, uh, and that's why Monday, uh, May 29th, is going to be so fascinating.
0: Yeah, no kidding. It really is. Dwayne, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts. Okay, you're welcome.